You are listening to MCC Votes and Seats, the podcast series of the Center for Political Science of Matthias Corvinus Collegium. We provide election insights with experts and politicians. Dear listeners, this time we are going to analyze the background, the circumstances, the results and the major consequences of the Danish general election that took place on November the 1st to elect the 179 members of the Danish parliament, the Folketing. We have the pleasure to host Dr. Christian Egander-Skov, historian and editor of the Danish journal Critique. Christian, thank you very much for accepting our invite. How are you? Well, I'm great and thank you for the invitation and the possibility to speak about the Danish election and politics here. Let's jump right into it. On November the 1st, 175 MPs were elected in Denmark proper, two in the Faroe Islands and another two in Greenland. The center-left bloc came out on top, securing the most votes. Many people saw the ballot as a confidence vote in incumbent Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen. Well, Frederiksen's red bloc secured the required 90 seats to form a government, while her Social Democrats party gained two seats more compared to the previous election, thus achieving its best result in two decades with approximately 27.5% of the vote. However, it is said that the early election took place as a result of an ultimatum made by the Danish Social Liberal Party sent to Frederiksen government back in October. Dr. Skov, could you please explain the role and the importance of that ultimatum? It is quite a long story and we have to go back to the long gone era where we had the COVID virus. At some point, the COVID virus spread to a bunch of farms that we had in Denmark where they have mink, you know, these tiny animals that you make fur out of. People were afraid and especially the government were afraid that the coronavirus would mutate in the mink population. So they ordered it to be closed down and the mink to be killed off. That was a problem because it was, strictly speaking, not quite legal to do so. So there have been since that time a strong critique against the social democratic government and their way of handling this crisis. The summer of 2022, there was a huge report about this mink scandal, which said that even though the government was not to blame in an illegal manner, because it had not known that it was illegal to do what it had done, they anyway criticized the government for being too powerful and too single-minded, perhaps in its pursuit of its goals. And this left this party that you mentioned, the Social Liberal Party, in a very difficult situation. The Social Liberal Party has been a supporter of the Social Democrats for almost 100 years, with some exceptions, but mostly they aligned themselves with the center-left, even though in some sense it is a center-right party. And they have been aligned with the center-left also during the first period of Mette Frederiksen's government. But they're also a party, being a liberal party, they're sort of very keen on observing the procedures and the rules, that is how they understand themselves. So the problem was that could they keep supporting a government which had been criticized for using power in a way which was perhaps not illegal, but still problematic. So they sort of tried to ponder that and they came up with the result that they could not support such a government. So they made this ultimatum and they said that if Mette Frederiksen would not call an election, they would move to a vote of no confidence. And that is how the election came about. So in a way, it was a way for the social liberals to try to manage this very difficult situation for them, just to perhaps uh, jumping 
into too much detail, the operation did not succeed very well for them because they had a terrible election, the social liberals. They were not rewarded for their um, position in this case. I understand and talking about the social democrats and the social liberals, 175 seats in Denmark include 135 seats elected in 10 multi-member constituencies by proportional representation and 40 uh, leveling seats allocated to parties in order to address any imbalance in the distribution of the constituency seats. The main threshold for leveling seats is 2%. The right of center blue bloc led by Jakob Elman Jensen's liberals, the Fenstre, came second with 23.4% uh, uh, of the vote. And the recently formed Moderates Party, led by two-time former Prime Minister Lars Lokke Rasmussen, also made significant gains in the election, becoming the third biggest party in Denmark. So, how would you describe the parties that managed to get in the forgetting? The main defining feature of this election is that there are now a lot of different parties in Parliament. It's very easy to get elected into Parliament in Denmark because you have, as you mentioned, this 2% threshold and then some exceptions, but mostly this is what counts. And you have a lot of parties just above that threshold. But if we just start, you mentioned the Liberal Party, uh, Jakob Elemans party called Vinstra in Denmark. Well, it is the main opposition party. And historically, it usually gets around these 20% of the vote. And usually, or at least historically, it used to represent the sort of the agrarian sector in Denmark. So it was the agrarian party. But of course, since you have had a general development where people, the voters, have moved from the countryside into the cities, Venstre is really not that much of an agrarian party anymore. It has redefined itself as the uh, sort of the liberal party, and it has called itself also the liberal party since the 1960s. And then, of course, as I mentioned, it is the leading opposition party, at least historically. And they collapsed in this election. They got only these 13% of the vote, and that is a historical low for that party. They lost the ability to sort of um, steer the direction of the blue bloc in Denmark. So that is perhaps the main story, actually. For me, as a historian, this is the main story of this election. It is about the collapse of the major center-right liberal party. And the reason, at least one of the apparent reasons that this party uh, collapsed was that you had two new parties sort of coming into existence out of the traditional liberal party. And you had, on the one hand, you had the parties that you mentioned, the moderates, which is led by the former chairman of Venstre, the liberal party. Their main idea is that the liberal party was too far to the right, so they wanted a party closer to the center. And then on the other hand, you have a wing of the liberal party, which call themselves the Denmark Democrats, also headed by a former top politician from the Liberal Party. And their critique of the Liberal Party is that it is too far to the left. So they have sort of moved themselves to the right of the Liberal Party and would sometimes be described as a more populist party. So you have this traditional Liberal Party, which is was in fact a people's party because it had a lot of different groups within it, a lot of different ideological ideas, and it has totally collapsed. So you have the more centrist bloc creating their own party and you have the more populist bloc 
creating their own party. And then you have the remnant of the original party sort of in the center. So that is a huge political and ideological crisis for the Liberal Party. The other interesting story in this election is the story about the Conservative Party. In Denmark, historically, you have had two major center-right parties. You have had the Liberal Party, and then you had the Conservative Party. So whereas the Liberals were concentrated in the agrarian sector for historical reasons, then the Conservative were the more sort of urban of the two center-right parties. Historically, they have been almost the same size. But in the last 30 years or so, the Liberal Party has been the major party of those two. In this election, it seemed that the Conservatives were once again in a position where they were actually on the road to becoming the major center-right party. They had in the polls, they had almost 17% of the vote before the election. But then something happened. And what happened is <laughs> quite a complicated question, but something happened and the Conservative Party collapsed during the election. And actually, it ended up becoming a very minor party in Parliament. So also they have been thrown out in a huge political and ideological crisis. So that is the entire sort of traditional center-right being thrown into crisis. It's very interesting what you're saying here, that uh, while the social democrats reached their best results in two decades and the social liberals obtained one of the worst ever performance, the liberals gathered a lot more votes than last time. So what has changed since the last legislative election in the attitudes within Danish society? Also, that is a huge question. I think we need to go back to the election in 2015. That is not the last election, but the election before that. At that point, you had a social democratic party, which was in crisis. It was seen as too much focused on the urban elite, too much focused on reforming the welfare state. And perhaps you could argue that there are good reasons to being focused on the urban elite and reforming the welfare state, because if you don't reform the welfare state, well, you can't have a welfare state. But anyway, when you reform things like the welfare state, some people will be put at a disadvantageous position. And when you focus on the urban elite, well, at least that means that some of the traditional voters that you had as a social democratic party, that is the working class, they would be sort of put off by the cultural message of a party like the social democrats. And then you had a generation of young social democrats who understood this crisis that social democrats have gotten themselves into. And they could see what was happening to social democratic parties throughout Europe, because in many countries, social democrats have collapsed. They have collapsed in the Netherlands. They have collapsed in France. They have not entirely collapsed in Germany, of course, but they have for many years lost some of the ground that they had won earlier. And you could probably mention other examples that I'm not thinking of right now. The center-left has been in a huge crisis for many years. So they looked out and saw that kind of bleak landscape for the center-left. And they thought about how can we reinvent social democracy? And their recipe for reinventing social democracy was in short that they redirected the focus from the urban elite to the traditional working class. So they moved left on economic issues and they moved right on cultural issues. Most importantly, of course, the issue of immigration. That meant that all of a sudden the right was put at a very disadvantageous position because one of the reasons that 
the right or the centre-right had been able to dominate Danish politics since 2001, which is, uh, well, I think I need to say that the, um, the sort of the default setting of Danish politics since the 1920s has been that social democrats have dominated almost entirely. But since 2001, you have had a sort of steady stream of centre-right governments with only one exception. And why did you have that? Well, of course, in one way, it was because people had confidence that the centre-right would be better able to uh, manage the welfare state than social democrats could. People in Denmark love the welfare state, but they also know that you have to be able to pay for the welfare state. And they have the confidence that the right would be better at doing that than the left. But then you have the other reason. Many voters had lost totally lost confidence that the left and the center-left were taking the uh, question of immigration seriously. And the demographics of Denmark have changed since the 1980s to becoming a more sort of multicultural society. And of course, some people are very much in favor of that, but many voters are not in favor of that. And those voters, they went from the Social Democrats to the right and mostly to the traditional populist party or national conservative party, you can term it whatever you wish, called the Danish People's Party. And the Danish People's Party was perhaps the most important political invention on Danish politics in the years from 2001 until perhaps 2016, 17 or something. And in the election in 2015, they even became the biggest party on the right. Then it turned out on the one hand, that the sort of the traditional center-right and the populists, they were not actually really great at cooperating. They had deeply seated ideological issues with each other. So that was the one problem. And then the other problem was the thing that I mentioned before, that the social democrats turned left on economic issues and right on cultural issues. They were able to get back a lot of those voters who had moved to the right before because they had not moved to the right because they were classical liberals or anything like that. They had moved to the right because they were right on cultural issues and most specifically on immigration. And now they moved back to the left because the left had changed its stance on immigration. The Danish People's Party that you mentioned have, yeah. has lost 10 seats compared to the previous election, while the other right-wing populists and uh, anti-immigration party, the Denmark Democrats, gained eight mandates and uh, they were not running last time. So what are the differences between these two parties? Yeah, well, that is a good question <laughs> because uh, a lot of the politicians in the Denmark Democrats are in fact old politicians from the Danish People's Party. So they have changed their allegiance because of internal turbulence within the Danish People's Party. So that's one of the answers that it is actually quite difficult to say what the difference is. And it's also difficult to say because the Danish People's Party has moved. I think it would be fair to say that the Danish People's Party, when they were the biggest party on the right, on many issues, they were quite centrist. They were the party on the right who wanted to cooperate with the social democrats on social issues and on economic issues. But then as a response to this apparent electoral crisis, which has almost destroyed the party, they have sort of moved to a more dogmatic national conservative position. And that hasn't really done any good for them, I would say. The Denmark Democrats, on the other hand, I called them a populist party before. 
I think that is a good term to describe this position, but they would never, of course, call that themselves because populism is mostly used as a pejorative in the political language, but sort of as a political science concept, I think that term is uh, correct. So they're much more actually a centrist party. They are moderate on economic issues, moderate on social issues. And I would even say that this question of immigration, they downplayed it during this election. They did not speak of that almost at all until sort of the last days before the election. They focused on another sort of issue which has become very important in Danish politics and that is the uh, the distinction between sort of the metropolitan centers of growth and then the countryside. And uh, the Denmark Democrats focused on the countrysides, uh, the places in Denmark sort of left behind the economic growth. But it remains to be seen how they will position themselves in the future. We don't know, actually, because it's such a young party. I predict that they will end up looking very much like the Danish People's Party when they were a larger party. Talking about the campaign issues and communication, Prime Minister Frederiksen referred to concerns like the Russian invasion in Ukraine, economic difficulties and problems with the healthcare system, stressing that the current election was a security election, a security bailout. So how would you assess the impact of the war in Ukraine and the energy crisis on the election results? Well, it is very strange because it is true that she said that. And it is true that she framed the election as a security election. On a very sort of general and abstract level, I think it is true, perhaps, that there has been this kind of rally around the flag effect because people want some kind of security in a situation where you don't have a lot of security. But even so, it is actually the case that, especially the question about the war in Ukraine and the, all the questions concerning security politics, they have been almost absent from this election. Nobody has talked about them. Nobody at all. People just seem not to care. And I think one of the reasons why this is that all of the major parties actually got together during the last period after the invasion in Ukraine and agreed on substantially investing in the Danish defense, although over a long period of time. So the question was actually, at least in the mind of politicians, solved. And then the other thing is that Denmark has, since the end of the Second World War, Denmark has really not been a part of world history. Nothing happens here. So the Danish electorate doesn't really care about foreign policy, the army or anything like that. The security question is important for people, but mostly in terms of material welfare, because people take the um, overall security in terms of politics and military, they take that for granted, I think. So the question was, in fact, absent. Well, that's very interesting because Frederiksen also stated that uh, she would prefer to form a moderate minority government with parties from both blocs. Yes. Uh, rather than maintaining the current, the former one-party system. Is it a way to distribute the responsibility in tough times? How do you see it? The idea about having a party sort of transcending the boundaries between the left and the right I think we need to understand that in terms of this terminology of crisis. So because we're in a difficult situation, then we need some kind of broader government instead of this one-party government, which we have had. So does you want to distribute responsibility? Yes, I think that is actually the case because, because in a way, what the Social Democrats have done during the last period, moving left on economic issues, 
has been to sort of bracket the entire question about welfare state reform. And now, because of the sort of insecurity in international politics and everything, we're in a very different economic environment. And I think most people agree that the time has come again for new reforms of the welfare state. And I think that the Social Democrats will have a much easier time making those reforms if they can share the responsibility with the centre-right. So they are working very hard on getting the centre-right into this government. So I think that is one very, very important issue at stake here. And then I think there is another important issue that if we look at the election, it seems like most of the sort of the political energy right now has moved from sort of the populist right, which social democrats reacted to earlier, and now the energy is sort of in the center of politics right now. Because as you mentioned before, it was the social liberals who actually called this election, and they are party of the center. The major political innovation, which we have almost not talked about, the moderate party, the moderates, they are also a party of the center. So there is a sense, at least among a quite large segment of the voter population, that politics ought to be more oriented towards the center. And I think Mette Frederiksen is reacting to that, even though a large group of the electorate want a centrist government. If you look at the numbers, actually, most voters would not want a centrist government. The problem is that those voters, of course, are distributed both on the right and on the left. So the really interesting question, I think, is, I think we're going to have a centrist government. I'm actually quite sure about that. And I'm also reasonably confident that you will have the social democrats in that government and i'm reasonably confident that you will have the liberal party also in that government and perhaps even the conservative party so you will have a huge block of most of the traditional parties within government and then the real question is what will that mean for the danish political structure in the long term because we have never had this situation before danish politics have always with one exception been structured along the division between the right and the left. And what we are seeing now is an altogether new kind of political structure, perhaps emerging, where it is structured between a division between the center and the periphery on the right and the left. So what will happen when you have this centrist government, this große Koalition, which they would say in Germany, is that you will see the parties on the right and the left of this government trying to get the maximum out of the situation by getting votes from the center to the periphery. So you will see a weakening of the political center. And of course, the entire purpose of having a centrist government is to strengthen the political center. But I fear very much <laughs> that we are going into in a time where we'll have a weakening of the political center and a strengthening of the sort of the, the right and also of the extreme left. With all these parties together, there will be too many ideologies and uh, potentially conflicting interests, I guess, uh, especially when it comes to the main strategic issues. So, for instance, what do we know about the attitudes towards EU policies of the major Danish parties? Well, that's an easy question, because uh, all the major parties are pro-European. And it's almost, you can't get into government if you're not a pro-European party. So that is a dogma among the traditional ruling parties in Denmark. Then you have, on the right, you have the Danish People's Party, are critical towards the EU. 
you have another populist right party, sort of more liberalist party, which are also very much against EU. On the extreme left, you have the Red-Green Alliance, which has traditionally been very much against the European Union. And they are now moving to a more positive view. And then you have another left-wing party, which used to call itself the Socialist People's Party in English, but now they call themselves the Green Left, and they are much more pro-European. But really, most of the party in Danish politics have become quite pro-European, even though they try to temper that enthusiasm with saying that they don't want to sort of close a, a cooperation. But when you get down to the real issues, most parties are very much in favor of, of the EU. The question about Europe is not really a huge issue in day-to-day -day politics. We have these referendums where people discuss the European Union, but otherwise it's just a question that is not really discussed. People are not interested in the European Union. As a last question, let's move to a more practical aspect of uh, the uh, November the 1st election. Compared to the 2019 ballot, were there any new campaign methods used this time? What were the major topics? Mostly, it is the case that you just saw a continuation, I think, of the trends already visible. That is the movement from traditional campaigning towards social media. So more money invested on Facebook and such kind of stuff. And that has become very important because in Denmark you cannot show political ads in television. So if you want to do that kind of um, modern media messaging, you have to do it on either in traditional newspapers or in radio, or on the social media. So that has become quite important. But there is a really interesting um, small story, but it has gotten a lot of focus in the election. You have one of the liberal parties called Liberal Alliance, which we have not really talked about. They used to be a very, very small liberal party. So they're sort of very much on the right on economic issues, sort of classical liberals. I think it is the party which is most critical towards the welfare state. And then they have moved sort of in a more conservative direction on cultural issues also. But they had a very, very good election this year. They went from being only three people in their uh, parliamentary group into being now, I think it is uh, 14 or something like that. And one of the successes that they had was that they have this young and quite charismatic chairman called Alexander Vanoxlak, who used TikTok as his main campaign platform. So he gained a huge following among young voters. And this party, Liberal Alliance, actually became the biggest party among young voters, that is people between 18 and 34. In the last election in 2019, people were quite sure that they would actually not make it, that this party would simply disappear. And now it has emerged as one of the main factors on the right. And I think if the Liberal Party, the sort of the traditional Liberal Party and the Conservative Party enters government, which something suggests that they might, then this party might become a very, very important party on the right. And they used TikTok. And also they had this change, as said, in the substance of what they communicated. So they became less sort of liberal in their cultural politics and more sort of oriented towards traditional values, at least traditional questions about how do we use liberty and freedom in order to ensure that we get meaning in our lives and what worth does liberty have if you don't use this liberty to get some kind of meaning in your life? That was the question, sort of quite deep existential questions that they asked in their campaign. Most people working within communication would say, well, those kind of questions are too abstract 
for voters to deal with. But it worked, and it, I think it suggests on a deeper level that sort of this question about values, I think it is a potential that most parties have not really grasped yet, but they have grasped it then in liberal alliance. So that is at least one thing. And then the main issues, of course, well, that's quite boring because that is the same thing that the main issues are always, uh, that is the welfare state and especially the hospitals because hospitals are expensive. Medicine is becoming ever more expensive. So how do we keep this system afloat? Which kind of reforms do we need to keep it afloat? Do we even need reforms? Do we need to pay the nurses more? Do we need to get more doctors from foreign countries and all of those questions? And how do we structure it? So that is sort of very important for people because most people realize even they are old or at some point they will be old, they will be sick. So they will be needing the hospital. So that is important for most people. Another important topic, at least when you ask people what they thought was important, that is the question about the climate and the green transition. I think when you ask the Danish voters, that sort of appears as the third most important issue. It wasn't actually discussed much during the election, but many people would argue that sort of as an underlying question, it still had a lot of potential to move the voters. And at least on the right, one of the analysis that they're looking at right now is that they lost the election because they were not green enough. It might be true because the whole question about climate and green transition, it is related to concrete politics, but it's also related to sort of more deeply seated cultural issues. We have learned that the Danish welfare state has come to a turning point and we can witness major transitions in the society, primarily due to the 21st century challenges. You also told us that the traditional existential values are being questioned in our days in Denmark. And we also learned that the largest group of the electorate wants a centrist government. However, it is not that common in Denmark to have a multi-party uh, government leading the country. It was a very interesting discussion. Uh, Dr. Christian Egander-Skov, it was a pleasure getting to know your opinion about the November the 1st Danish election. We really appreciate your kind contribution and wish you all good luck in your current and future endeavors. Thank you. Well, thank you. It was very interesting talking to you also.